The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Welcome to the Ask Harry podcast. This is Harry Margolis, and this is the podcast where we interview experts on all aspects of estate planning. Harry's guest today, Morel Mann an estate planning associate at Margolis & Bloom on the subject of ABLE accounts. Hi, Morel. Hi. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to have an in-house expert to talk with today about ABLE accounts. But before we uh, actually get into the substance of it, I think uh, the listeners should know uh, a few things that are special about you. And one, of course, is that you speak Spanish. And the and another that I only found out recently is that you, in addition to a law degree, you have a master's in public health. I do, yeah. That was my post-grad college kind of detour before I got to law school. Well, it's certainly uh, relevant to both specialties planning and elder law, so that's good. Yeah. So you'd think I would have known that, but I didn't. So ABLE account. So what, what's an ABLE account? Yeah. So an ABLE account essentially establishes a tax-free savings account for eligible individuals with disabilities. It's codified in the Internal Revenue Code, and it's really an opportunity for eligible individuals to save for certain types of expenses while maintaining their eligibility for certain means-tested benefits. SSI or Medicaid or subsidized housing. So, so that's really the point of it, that you could have some money set aside in this account and, and, and still get benefits. Exactly. Since the usual asset limit, at least for SSI, is just $2,000. Right. right. And I can't remember when that was set, but it's uh, several decades ago. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they haven't adjusted that for inflation. And, so, and what does ABLE stand for? ABLE stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience. Okay, so everyone can forget that since I do, but but that's for- And I think it it does just that. It really helps build um, a sense of autonomy and self-worth and independence for people with uh, disabilities. So so we've used it for our clients, as you know, a lot for clients who have SSI Mm -hmm. and either have received funds, which would put them over the asset limit, so they need to- do something with them, or they are newly disabled, and they and they need to. They would either have to spend down the money, or they can put it into an able account, or they or they may turn eighteen. So sometimes people with disabilities, where they become eligible for SSI at age eighteen, and they may have had some funds, whether it's stuff they earned or money that was gifted to them, that would make them ineligible. So it's a good way to, in effect, I guess, shelter that money. Yeah, it's great for inheritances, settlements, or gifts are typically what they recommend ABLE accounts for. But but there are a bunch of limitations on them, right? There are, yeah. So the contributions to the ABLE account are limited to the IRS gift tax exclusion amount of $15,000 per year. And then you can only have up to $100,000 in the ABLE account. It's not going to, it's not going to uh, impact your SSI eligibility, but it will spend it until you're able to spend down whatever you have in your ABLE account over $100,000. So, so you maintain your sort of disability eligibility but it becomes a cannibal asset, the excess over over 100000 is that right? Yes. So, so again, you're limited to $10,000 in cannibal assets. So if you 
So who can manage the ABLE account? So it can be managed by the designated beneficiary, him or herself, which is the disabled individual. It can also be managed by a parent, a legal guardian, or a power of attorney. And so, so, but unlike a special needs trust, for, for example, the individual himself or herself can manage the account. Right, exactly. And then you mentioned earlier that it pr- provides them w- with more autonomy, which is great. Yes, right. So, and just going back to the $15,000 limit, as people who know about the gift tax limitation is for, if you're making gifts of more than $15,000 per year to an individual, you're supposed to file a gift tax return and the, the $15,000 is an exemption. But the big difference here is that any number of people can give $15,000 a year to a recipient and not have to file a gift tax return. But for the ABLE account, the account can only accept $15,000 a year from all sources. So, yeah. so if you had, uh, if you had, were in a wealthy family and you had grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles who all wanted to give you $15,000 a year, you could receive $150,000 a year and no one would have to file any gift tax return. But if they all wanted to put money into your ABLE account, they could only put it in $1,500 each because it can't exceed 15000 in total. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's $15,000 from any source. That's the total amount that can be contributed to your ABLE account in any given year. And are there any limitations on what the funds in the ABLE account can be spent on? Yeah, so you can only use the funds in your ABLE account for what are known as Qualified Disability Expenses, or QDEs. These are any expense related to the account owner's blindness or disability, which are made for the benefit of the designated beneficiary or the disabled individual. So this is actually a pretty broad category. It includes anything from education, housing, transportation, employment support and training, health, legal fees even, and basic living expenses like food. So it is, you can use it for for quite a lot of things as long as it is for the designated beneficiary's benefit. Good. And and if I wanted to set one up, how would I go about doing that? So it is a state-administered program that you can sign up in any state, regardless of whether or not that state has created an ABLE account program. And the most important thing to do is read the POMS, the Program Operations Manual System. It tells you exactly um, what to do. Uh, And there's a lot of good resources. The ABLE National Resource Center is a good resource also for determining how to set it up. But it is administered on a state level, and you'll have to go through your state. And in Massachusetts, the state's, in effect, contracted with Fidelity to to provide for these accounts, right? If you say so. I didn't know that, but that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it is Fidelity. And so you can search on fi- the Fidelity website or search for Fidelity ABLE account if you're in Massachusetts and they you can go online and, and create the account. But you can only, the other thing just be aware of is you can only have one ABLE account. Right. So, but since it's only each state basically through its regulations has a contract with a different financial institution. You only can pretty much set up one account anyway in each state, though you only you only want to do it once. Right, <laughs> that's true. And so, if you have so if you have an able account, or since able accounts are available, does that mean there's no need for a special needs trust? No, not necessarily. So, having an able account is a good way. It's a good thing to have in terms of a more comprehensive 
plan. So having a special needs trust or an SNP is actually still the optimal planning vehicle if larger sums of money are at stake. So as we discussed, you can only put $15,000 per year in your ABLE account, and there's no limit um, to the amount of funds that you can transfer to a supplemental needs trust. But together with a supplemental needs trust, ABLE accounts are really good for maximizing an individual's benefit. So, and we, and often we've used them in conjunction with a special needs trust since, and, and this is especially true with subsidized housing. Right. So, so with subsidized housing, as the listeners may know, the way Section 8 and uh, most other um, subsidies work is the tenant pays about a third of her income towards rent. And the rest of the rent is paid for by the subsidy. And the problem often is with a uh, special needs trust is if the trust pays the rent, then that's deemed income. And so if say the rent's $1,000 a month and the trust is paying it, then the, the rent will actually go up by about $300 or $330 a month. So you only get two-thirds of the benefit of the distribution from the trust. So, so, if the same, so if the same trust made the distribution to an ABLE account instead, and the rent were paid from the ABLE account, then the beneficiary would get the full benefit for the thousand dollars because it wouldn't affect his or her rent. Right. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. And it's also true, of course, with SSI, because trustees or other parents, anyone else trying to support someone on SSI, often have to jump jump through a lot of hoops to provide the support without that being deemed income to the beneficiary. So they may do it through credit cards or. Uh, and those often have to be limited credit cards and, or, or again, paying bills on behalf of the beneficiary, which can get to be time consuming. If every mm-hmm. time the beneficiary needs something, you're making a distribution from the trust. But if you can just, again, distribute a, a monthly stipend or say, again, of $1,000 a month, perhaps. I keep saying $1,000 a month because that's 12000 a year and that's under the $15,000 limit. If you did that into the ABLE account, then the beneficiary himself or herself could pay all these small bills and it would save a lot of time for the trustee. Right. So, so rather than being a kind of a replacement for a special needs trust, it's more of a, an adjunct or a, a new tool that makes life a lot easier. So, and I guess, uh, and you say, and another kind of special needs trust you still may need is a, a pooled or D4C trust, or even I guess it could be a D4A trust, distinguishing um, between a what we call a third party trust, which is a trust a say a parent or a grandparent would create for a beneficiary, and a what's called a first party trust, which is a trust that the person getting public benefits actually creates himself or herself. And there there are different rules for each, with with there being a lot more restrictions for the first party trust, which is, uh, which is often called a, a D4A or D4C trust, which are just references to the statutory provisions uh, that authorize them. But, what I'm, but I, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is the ABLE account is probably more likely a replacement for those than for a third party trust, because as, as we talked about earlier, the beneficiary may have a small amount of money that just gets them, puts them over the $2,000 which they can either shelter in an ABLE account or in a D4A or D4C, D4C uh, trust. But again, if it's over 15,000, they're going to have to use the trust or spend it down. Right. Yeah. So I'm covering a lot of your material. Sorry. 
<laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the major difference between also a ABLE account and a third-party supplemental needs trust or first-party supplemental needs trust, I believe that in terms of who can control the account for an ABLE account, the person with the disability has the ability to control, you know, the funds going in and out and what they're used for, whereas for a third-party or first-party supplemental needs trust, it's typically anyone except for the person uh, with the disability and their spouse. Yeah. So do ABLE accounts have a payback provision like a D4A and D4C trusts? ABLE accounts are probate asset and they're subject to Medicaid payback in some states. And in the states that they that that do, the recovery is limited to services provided after the establishment of the ABLE account. So this also differentiates it from the supplemental needs trust where payback is for Medicaid services ever provided. So a state recovery, so it's really a state recovery rather than a trust term. And a state recovery is only for Medicaid benefits paid after age 55. And but the uh, the terms of the trust the trust are as you said are for all Medicaid benefits. Yes. So, so it's a, a little bit more limited. But the best thing I guess is just to spend the money while you're alive, and then you don't have to worry about that. Exactly. <laughs> so is is there anything we've uh, missed that people should know about uh, able accounts? I think part of the criteria for eligibility that we didn't really discuss is that the nature of the disability itself. So the individual applying for an ABLE account has to self-certify that they have a disability that lasts at least one year or it's included on the SSA list of disabilities. And it's a physical or mental disability that has to exist before the age of 26. That's a big, big issue, which I guess we should have mentioned earlier and I forgot about. That is a huge limitation. You can't use it unless you you can show that you were disabled before age 26. Right. Yeah. And I know there's some disability groups that have been working to uh, get Congress to change that because uh, that does really limit the uh, its availability because you may become disabled later or there are a lot of people who have a disability but do their best to work for as long as possible. And, and it's maybe a little questionable if, you, if you're able to work despite the disability and then at age 50 you can no longer work, are you entitled to use an ABLE account or not? I, and I don't know the answer to that question. Yes, neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh-huh. uh, and I guess one other cool feature of the ABLE account is the 529 rollover option. So if you have a 529 plan meant for educational um, expenses, you can actually roll it into the ABLE account, obviously in limited amount. And you can do that either if the plan's beneficiary is eligible for ABLE, or actually if the beneficiary siblings, step-siblings, or half-siblings are eligible for creating an ABLE account. So this is actually great, practically speaking, for families to avoid financial penalties for liquidating 529 for beneficiaries who just can't use them for their intended purpose. And it allows those funds to kind of be repurposed for the disabled beneficiary and their siblings. That that sounds really good. Yeah, because often people will create these plans not knowing that the, the beneficiary is going to have a disability or say grandparents set them up and they they want to be kind of treat all the grandchildren equally right and, and that's and that's going to be hard so so yeah, more important information you had mentioned earlier a, a a resource a national online resource yes the able national resource center 
So, and that's available and has a, a lot of uh, answers to these kinds of questions. Yeah, they have a FAQ that is really helpful. And, uh, and if anybody has any questions for you, Morale, how would they find you? <laughs> uh, well, they can shoot me an email at, I'm also on the website, all my contact information is there, or they can give me a call at 781-943-5412. Great. So thank you for sharing all this information about ABLE accounts. And I think it's a great resource for lots of people. And I think it'll become a growing resource as, as the word gets out. Yeah, great. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Merrill. Thank you for listening to the Ask Harry podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have questions about estate planning, you can find answers at askharry.info. And if you don't find your answer there, you can post a question and I will respond to it. You can also subscribe and listen to future episodes on iTunes.